Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Infrastructure in the U.S. is outdated and will cost billions to improve. Will it be a priority under a new commander-in-chief? Today, where we live, we look at one mode of transportation that's been widely discussed in Connecticut and other northeast states, and that's rail. We'll hear from a Washington Post reporter on the latest to update the rail system from D.C. to Boston. The Federal Railroad Administration has a new plan to do just that, but some Connecticut officials and shoreline residents aren't thrilled. We'll find out why. And what's the latest with that New Haven to Springfield line? We'll talk with a state resident who blogs about transportation. He'll break down the challenges and solutions in the region to make train travel safer, dependable, and dare we say it, faster. Also, what lessons can we learn from Europe? They seem to have a handle on the best ways to encourage mass transit. We'll learn more about the European rail system later in the hour. Now, do you travel by train? What improvements would you like to see? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, joining us now is Lori Aratani. She's a staff writer and transportation reporter at The Washington Post. Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So tell us about the Federal Railroad Administration. There are recommendations released in late December to improve rail in the Northeast Corridor. What's the vision from the FRA standpoint? I think the vision is more trains, faster trains, and a smoother ride. They've unveiled a $120 billion plan to improve rail connections and rail service on the Northeast Corridor. Um, it's ambitious, and it's their first major update in nearly 40 years. So we're talking about, um, as I said, more trains, faster trains. Um, it's something that plays well in some areas along that corridor, which is Amtrak's busiest and its most profitable. Mm-hmm. But as you all know, it doesn't necessarily play well in all segments of that corridor, particularly where you are in Connecticut. That's right. And we're going to hear more about uh, why in, in just a few moments. Um, but if we could talk about, you know, the, all of the planning that took uh, us to get here to this point. So was it four years in the making, this big FRA recommendation that came out in December? This was four years in the making. This is hundreds of public hearings and public engagement sessions, um, all to put this all together. Um, you know, some of the things they're talking about is, you know, this would be a huge boost. You know, say, for example, right now, you have 38 trains that go between Washington Union Station and Penn Station, New York. If this vision plays out, as they hope it will, that would be, you'd, you'd now have 136 trains. For you all, a train, you have 19 trains going from Stanford to Providence, that would go to 88. So it is a huge, it is a huge increase. Um, Part of the reason why they want to do this is because they're predicting that the population along that corridor is going to increase um, by 2040. It's going to increase by 7%. So we're talking about millions more because you think of the cities that are along this corridor. We're talking about Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, um, Hartford, or Connecticut and um, Boston. You'll have to forgive me. I'm not as familiar with the Connecticut maps. <laughs> That's okay, because under this planet, it looks like Connecticut's kind of the throughway for uh, to get people from D.C. all the way to Boston. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the controversy. So part of this, obviously new trains, faster trains, but realignment of rail along the Connecticut coast. Um, is that plan realistic? Is that? It doesn't sound like it's realistic. I think both your governor and your senator, Senator Blumenthal, have been very vocal about how this plan is a non-starter. Um, they are not. They are not pleased with it. You know, FRA notes that they have made some alterations to to help accommodate some concerns raised by communities, particularly I think in old old Lyme. Um, but. I think communities still don't like the idea. You know, some down here in Washington, I think folks who do business in New York love the idea of nearly 100 more trains. But if you're a small community, I don't know that you want the volume to to increase by that much. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about money, how many billions of dollars are we talking about? We're talking about $120 billion. And so the plan has been released. Now it's up to the states and local governments to figure out, you know, what makes sense for their communities? I think it'll be up to a combination. You know, FRA has laid out this very broad vision. Um, they can't make it happen without money. $120 billion is a lot of money. So I think it's going to take help at the local, state, and federal level. You know, Amtrak is also a player in this. And in many ways, what the FRA unveiled in December sort of fits right in with a plan that Amtrak unveiled back in September. They received a $2.45 billion loan um, from the federal government. It's the largest in the Department of Transportation's history um, to help do upgrades along that rail corridor. The bulk of that money will go to buy new Acela trains for their faster Acela service, but they're also talking about adding new stations. If you have folks up there that, that happen to fly out of Philadelphia, they want to add a new stop at the airport there. Right now, you have to go to the Amtrak station and take another train to get to the airport. But they're talking about a lot of upgrades. You know, one of the things that have always eluded, that Americans, I think, have always dreamed about but has always sort of eluded us is this idea of high-speed rail. I think if you travel anywhere else in this world, particularly in Japan, you see these these modern, efficient, high-speed rail trains. And in, in the States, you know, high-speed rail isn't really a thing that's been happening here. And Amtrak, I think, and both FRA believe that with track upgrades, with new trains, we can get we, we probably won't be high-speed rail, but we can be speedier rail. Um, they're talking about cutting trip times, you know, 30, 45 minutes. You know, that may not seem a lot, but, you know, it's something. It's a start. So the trip between D.C. and New York um, would be 35 minutes faster under this plan. Upgrades would allow uh, the trip between New York and Boston um, to be reduced by 45 minutes. Um, it takes a, a massive infusion of money, again, to, to make a lot of these recommendations happen. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Um, joining us now from Washington is Lori Aratani, staff writer, transportation reporter at The Washington Post. Now, you reported on that big loan uh, that DOT awarded to Amtrak, and that's already been um, that contract then was awarded from Amtrak to a French company, Alstom, to make these higher speed uh, bullet trains, so to speak? Yes, it is. They'll be they'll be lighter. They'll be fat. They'll be capable of, tri of traveling faster. Right now, um, they travel about 135 miles with some upgrades and new trains. They travel probably at 160. They'd be capable of going to speeds as fast as 186. 
But again, that takes a lot of infrastructure improvements to do that. A lot of trains share tracks on that corridor. It's a very busy corridor, not just because you have passenger rail service, you have commuter rail service, you also have freight rail service that travels up that corridor. Now let's talk about safety. I mean, you know, as a, a transportation reporter here in Connecticut, we've been paying a lot of attention to this issue with uh, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal with the um, several tragic uh, train derailments in recent years. 2015, Amtrak train derailed in Philadelphia, killing eight, injuring more than 200. In 2013, a Metro North train derailing in the Bronx, killing four, injuring many more. You know, what has been the response about making um, this corridor safer from the federal government? I think there. There, there has been a push for a long time to make this this corridor safer. There's, um, there's something called positive train control, which is essentially an automatic braking system, and it's been something that's been on the National Transportation Safety Board's list of must-do safety fixes for more than 40 years. Um, and in 2008, following a terrible crash in California, there was a big push to install positive train control on trains. Um, with the deadline of 2015, the end of 2015. In the middle of that, the railroads don't like it. It's, it's, NTSB says it's life-saving technology, but the, for the railroads, it's just another expense. I think the estimate is that it would t- it's a $14.7 billion fix or enhancement, and railroads have argued against it. The 2005, they were in the middle of trying to extend the 2015 deadline when this terrible crash happened in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, so a compromise came out. Uh, they've got an extension for three years with a possible extension of two years after that. But FRA has been very adamant that this is technology that needs to go in place. One thing I should say is that Amtrak actually has this in place on the Northeast Corridor. Um, You might recall that we recently had a crash in Hoboken where the commuter train crashed into the station. Um, New Jersey Transit did not have positive train control. Um, So I think there is a big push. I think we'll see what will happen, though. With the changeover administration, uh, the Trump folks have talked about how they feel that there are too many regulations and this is an overreach. This is something that the, the industry has argued as well. I, we don't know what will happen yet. We'll have to see when Elaine Chow gets in during her confirmation hearing. She talked about how there were a lot of regulations out there, and they really have to rethink about whether they're necessary. Even so, without positive train control, there are other steps that have been taken. One of the things that Amtrak did immediately was they installed inward-facing cameras so that they could see what the engineers were doing. Um, there's a push to have a second person in that engineer's cab to keep a watch. You know, right now, engineers, it's not foolproof. You can't fall asleep at the switch. You have a system in which you have to keep indicating that you're awake, and if you don't, an alarm goes off to, to, to remind you. But there is a push to put a second person in that cab. New Jersey Transit, immediately after, in the aftermath of their terrible crash, now requires that there be the conductor join the engineer in the cab on approach to the two um, stations up there. Um, another thing that Amtrak did was, I know it sounds silly, but sometimes small things, small fixes matter. They've installed uh, more speed limit signs just to remind engineers in certain areas of that of that corridor what the speed limit should be. Um, there's also, in FRA is also, New Jersey Transit also changed. One of the factors in the Hoboken crash, it appears, is that the um, engineer may have been suffering from sleep apnea. So this has been a push for the FRA for a very Federal Railroad Administration mm-hmm. for a very long time. 
um, since 2004, but New Jersey Transit has now changed um, their policy so that not only do their engineers have to be tested, um, they have to be cleared and treated before they can return to service. Um, and Lori, b- before we have to go to break, again, you mentioned Elaine Chouse. This is uh, who Donald Trump has nominated to be his transportation secretary. What do we know about her priorities uh, with rail? We don't we don't know a whole lot. We know that during her confirmation hearing, she had committed to uh, getting a lot of briefings, it sounds like, and working well with her partners in Congress. But it's not clear what her priorities have be, have, will be. As you know, the um, Trump campaign and the Trump administration has talked a lot about a trillion-dollar investment in infrastructure. But infrastructure can be a lot of things. I'm sure folks are hoping, depending on what mode of transportation you use, you, it could be roads, could be trains. Um, so we'll have to see how she feels about rail. She did make a point of mentioning during her hearing that her father and, and sister and, and twin nieces did take Amtrak down to D.C. to be part of her hearing. So maybe that's good news for folks who travel along that corridor. And we've heard that President-elect uh, Donald Trump has a lot of connections in the, the corporate community. Uh, any connections with the president of Amtrak? Uh, he actually, he, I, I am... That I am not clear on. I know that the new president of Amtrak is indeed um, well acquainted with members of the of the um, transportation committees, and a, a lot of congressional folks were very pleased and sent out very good signals when he he was named. Um, so we'll have to see. But he is someone that comes from business, so Trump may find common ground with him. Um, they may talk a similar language, so that that could also be good news. He may also bring. I think folks are hoping a more business minded approach to running Amtrak. And one last thing before we let you go. Um, we know a lot of money to, to make improvements to a very uh, old infrastructure here in the Northeast Corridor. Um, uh, more of an approach to reach out to private investors to make that happen under this new administration? Well, I think that has been something that Republicans in Congress have long pushed to privatize this corridor. Um, it is profitable, and businesses and private interests like 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 entities that are profitable, unlike some of Amtrak's routes. So we may see a new push for for privatizing some portions of, of the corridor. I've been speaking to Lori Aratani. She's staff writer and transportation reporter at The Washington Post. Lori, thanks for your time today. Great. Thanks for having me. And we'll link to some of her stories on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, coming up, how likely are new tracks and other improvements in Connecticut? We're going to find out right after the break. And we want you to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Trains, they seem like such a romantic way to travel. Kids love them. Adults do, too. Unless the train they're waiting for is running late and crowded, then forget it. It can seem like an antiquated way to travel. But there are plans to improve the railway railways, but it will cost billions, as we heard from our last guest. So what are the viable options in Connecticut? To help us answer that question, we're joined now by Jim Cameron. He's a transportation columnist, blogger, and founder of the Commuter Action Group. Jim, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. So tell us about um, your perspective on the FRA's latest plan to make trains more reliable and faster. And why is it controversial here in Connecticut? Well, one of the things that uh, Lori from the Washington Post didn't mention was that there were a number of different alternatives that were considered 
to try to improve and really build world-class high-speed rail uh, through Connecticut. There were different routes that were considered. One actually was going to go from Penn Station, New York, into Long Island and then into a tunnel through Long Island, under Long Island Sound, and then up through New Haven, up through Hartford, and up through the quiet corner to Boston. Uh, the other route, that the one I favored the most and I think makes the most sense, would be to take an inland route basically following uh, Interstate 84. So you'd come up from New York along 684 through Westchester, hang a right, go through Danbury, Waterbury, Hartford, and then on up to Boston. The advantage of that route was it could be brand new. It could be straight as an arrow, and you could really achieve the kind of world-class, you know, 200, 225-mile-an-hour speeds that we have in Japan and China and Europe. Uh, there was a lot of opposition to the inland route from business interests along the coast, the, the governor, the folks in Stanford, the Fairfield Business Council. Uh, they felt they were going to be uh, left out and that uh, they'd be uh, – you know, kind of an economic cul-de-sac, if you will. Uh, well, Amtrak never said they would do that. They said they would continue a Sela service along the coast. But the opposition to that inland route forced the FRA to say, okay, you really want to stay along the coast, along the tracks you've got now? We'll do that. And what they came up with was a realignment of some of those tracks, uh, in many cases following the existing right-of-way, but also peeling off in other areas and going along I-95. Now, they're a little ambiguous as to whether they would run the railroad through the, the median in the middle of the highway or alongside the highway. But uh, the opposition that we heard from folks in Old Lyme, where that realignment would run basically through their historic district, is now being paralleled by communities like Greenwich and Stamford and Darien and Norwalk, where the idea of having a high-speed rail line run uh, along 95 or on top of 95 is not really winning many friends. And one of those um, people speaking in opposition is Richard Blumenthal. He's called this plan to realign the tracks along Connecticut shore dead on arrival. Here he is speaking at a congressional briefing last month. I am disappointed that this report continues to adhere to a realignment and resetting of routes that essentially imposes environmental costs that are unwarranted, quality of life costs, financial costs, and potentially costs in sacrificing historic landmarks. I wanted to bring into the conversation now another voice. Uh, Matthew Nemerson is in the studio with us. He's Development Administrator for the City of New Haven. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Lucy. So New Haven, obviously a very important city. A lot of, a lot of people travel down there to hit the train to go down to New York. Um, what's New Haven's perspective on FRA's latest plans? Well, we, we have been following this for many, many years and are very you know, we actually like a lot of the plans. And, um, you know, Jim mentioned the plan that went to Long Island and then went under the sound. We, we thought that was actually viable, uh, although very expensive. But uh, tunneling has gotten much better, and it's happening all around the country. Uh, but we actually like the plan a lot right now. And for us, in terms of the commute shed, the ability to get to more jobs, it's it's a very, very important part of, I think, the future of Connecticut's growth. Because being able to go faster and to have more trains between 
both New Haven and Bridgeport and Stanford getting into New York really opens up millions of jobs. And a lot of this is really about how far you can get in an hour, in 45 minutes on a train. We all know how backed up the highways are. We know uh, how hard it is to create jobs in Connecticut. And so being linked to the New York job market is, is certainly a critical thing for all of us. You know, we're a little disappointed that the, the way the senators jumped on some of the obvious uh, environmental things that, that the report said would be worked out. We knew there were a lot of things that had to come in terms of sort of finalizing all of this. We're part of a big, big system here between Washington and Boston. And as you said earlier in the show, we're just one piece of that. And we don't want to see the money spent simply between Washington and New York, where where there obviously is the largest economic gain. But we think that for us, the percentage gain, New York might pick up 10% more jobs in terms of a commute shed. A place like New Haven can go up 10 times. And so for us, this is really a, a critical issue. And we feel that for the entire state, especially now with the Springfield line being connected to New Haven, uh, that this is really an existential moment for Connecticut to be part of the whole growth between Washington and Boston and New York. And we've seen that Connecticut's been bypassed by a lot of that. We think this rail system can actually make a big difference. So you were saying that you think it was premature for uh, Richard Blumenthal to say dead on arrival? Well, I, we were a little disappointed about that. We talked to his office. We understand the intense intensity against this in places like Old Lyme, and that's, and that's certainly the way these kind of environmental things work. A hundred people against something are different than a million people who are kind of for it. And, uh, but we think that it's very important that we express that we want to be part of the system between Washington and Boston and that the, we've seen companies leave Connecticut, go to Boston. We've seen sort of a realignment of uh, New York as a tech center. We really want to own all of that. We, we feel that we're so close. We're a lot uh, less congested even though there is a lot of congestion in the Fairfield County area, it's still a lot less compared to northern Jersey and the New York area. We think we can be uh, advantaged by both price and by just quality of life here. But you have to have the connections, especially with young people. And I think you have a lot of shows that you talk about different generational issues. Millennials love to travel by train. They don't even mind a crowded train uh, or it being a little bit late compared to having to get a car, compared to having to sit in traffic on I-95. There are so many advantages to trains high-speed trains, but also, as, uh, as Jim and uh, Lori pointed out, just the number of trains that are going to be on the system, the new train sets coming in. What a great opportunity for Connecticut to be totally cemented to the Boston and New York areas. Uh, Jim Cameron, what's your take? Again, transportation columnist and blogger, founder of the Commuter Action Group. Well, uh, you know, there's this there's this dream that I keep hearing from the business community of what they call 30-30-30, you know, having trains that can run from Hartford to New Haven in 30 minutes, from New Haven to Stamford in 30 minutes, and from Stamford to Grand Central in 30 minutes. Well, you know, that's not going to happen. It's not with this existing right-of-way. I mean, a, a train from New Haven to Grand Central now, it's about 75 miles. It takes about two hours. There's no way you're going to get that down to one hour. Uh, what, we're, what the FRA is proposing with this coastal uh, route is not true world-class high-speed rail. It's higher speed. I think that the, the savings with some of the realignment was, what, in the 45-minute range between New York and Boston? Uh, you know, even Metro North is being forced to run at slower speeds now since the derailment in Fairfield and the FRA getting up their backside and looking at all of the safety violations they had. So, 
yes, it's clear that the extended commute times, even on Metro North, because of the slower running of trains, has impacted the business community. It's it's impacted real estate values of people who live in those those communities. When when folks work in New York City, they kind of draw a sixty minute commuting circle. Uh, how far out of the city can they get in sixty minutes? And that line does not get you as far as it used to. Matt Emerson wants to respond. Well, one of the big things that I think can happen, and Jim, I think you agree with this, is that we can get more trains into Penn Station, um, even some of the commuter lines. And as the east side access opens up Long Island Railroad trains going to Grand Central, there are going to be more platform availabilities in Penn Station. That is a much faster commute when you make that left-hand turn at New Rochelle and bring the trains there. West side of Manhattan is very powerful. And also, yes, it's true that people are looking for how far can they get from when they're in New York City, but we're looking at how far can you get a job when you're living in New Haven or Bridgeport. Because for us, you know, having the advantages of Yale and having a lot of the high-tech firms in Connecticut, oftentimes a spouse or a partner wants to still have a job in New York or Boston. They may not be commuting every single day, but being able to get there even in an hour and 30 minutes is a huge advantage over two hours. So for us, this is a, a very important way to be more competitive globally. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about rail in Connecticut and if improvements will be happening in the near future in the busy Northeast Corridor. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Before we take a call, I wanted to go back to Jim Cameron. You mentioned that um, even with some of the improvements with the realignment of track, it wouldn't be true high-speed rail. Um, I wanted to, to play a bite from a show called Extreme Trains, actually describing the Acela. Amtrak's Acela Express. A lightning-fast, European-style bullet train linking this country's biggest cities. This bullet train zooms from downtown to downtown up to 150 miles an hour. So that sounds fast and exciting, Jim, but it's not entirely accurate because of the way the tracks are laid out and because of population density? A European-style bullet train. Give me a break. (laughs) Uh, you know, there's like one stretch stretch in uh, in western Rhode Island. I've ridden a cella. I've got an app on my phone with a speedometer, and I track how fast that train's going. Yeah, we hit 147 miles an hour in one little section. But along the corridor between, you know, where Metro North runs, a cella runs no faster than Metro North does, maybe 90 miles an hour. Over its entire run, between Washington and Boston, when you factor in the station stops, etc., it averages 70 miles an hour. Now, I've been to China. I've ridden trains between Beijing and Shanghai, the distance of New York to Chicago, in five hours, 225 miles an hour. Now, the uh, commissioner of transportation from the federal government of the U.S. went and took a look at that line and said, you know, it's amazing what you can do in a country where you only need three people to make a decision. We're going to go from here to there, and here's how we're going to build it. And if you're in the way, too bad, no environmental impacts. I mean, China's been able to do it, but, you know, that's not going to happen in this country. If the FRA uh, is wedded to moving along the coast and has no support from our congressional delegation, our State Department of Transportation, or our governor, the idea of running a high-speed rail along I-95 is just not going to happen. Uh, I think that they should go back and reconsider that inland route. We would still have good train service to New Haven. We'd still have Acela. We wouldn't have the new 165-mile-an-hour Acela, which is not the speed it's going to run at. That's its capabilities. 
And this all comes at the time when Amtrak, we heard, just received a $2.45 billion contract, or union, I'm sorry, loan from uh, the, de- the Transportation Department, and they've already awarded it to a French company to build more of these high-speed bullet trains, but they won't be able to actually go as fast as they're able. That's about right, and I think it's uh, to the Obama administration's credit that they uh, got that loan through to to Amtrak to not only buy new rail cars but uh, beef up the stations, add more stations, as Lori mentioned, at important hubs like Philadelphia Airport. So, uh, you know, I think Amtrak's doing a good job. The new president of Amtrak uh, is not just a business person. He came out of retirement having worked at freight railroads. Very smart guy, very popular with the employees. I think he's going to have a good vision. The question is, are we going to be able to tap into uh, President-elect Trump's bill, excuse me, trillion dollars that he wants to spend on infrastructure and make sure that that doesn't all get sucked into building new highways? Let's take some calls now. Uh, Lynn from West Hartford. Lynn, you're on the show. Uh, hi, this is um, Lynn. The thing that really worries me about this whole um, plan of throwing billions of dollars into the coastline is climate change. Uh, we've already seen a lot of devastation from hurricanes like Sandy, and that's expected to get worse in the future as the oceans warm. And, of course, um, the seawaters will be rising, the sea level will be rising. Um, I'm looking at an article in the Connecticut Mirror that says that um, in, the, in my son's lifetime, a hurricane level three could devastate 160 miles of coastline railroad. And that's just, you know, why would we pour billions of dollars into the coast? We should be putting our um, big money for rail into the interior and just maintain the coast for the people who are using it. Thank you, Len, for your comment. Did you want to respond, Matt? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of plans to make the coastline rail more resilient, and and clearly that's one of the things. Bridgeport's working on it. We're working on it. Um, I think the state is aware of that. I think that's actually one of the ironies here because I think some of the realignments that we're talking about are for resilience. So these are going to be the difficult things. Clearly there are, you know, I think going back to what Jim said, China spent a trillion dollars and they just sort of wipe out probably a hundred new Londons and, and old lines every time they sort of put in a new rail line. So we can't do that. But we also have to think about getting to above the water. And I think the caller had a very good point. I'll take a, another call, Galena from Waterford. Galena, you're on the show. Hi, how's it going? Well, how are you? Great. Um, I just had a comment. I'm a young person living and working in Connecticut, um, and I don't intend to stay because there's nothing, there's not quite enough development for me here. Um, so I intend to take my, my career goals and my path as developer simply because living here is unsustainable and there's not enough development here, and that includes transportation. I come from a position of privilege. I can drive my car to my job, but a lot of people can't do that, and that's forcing people to leave. Um, and I also understand that uh, marshes and swamps and whatever they have in old limes are really unique and special ecosystems and important to our environment. Connecticut is beautiful, um, but that wealthy white demographic is not thinking about the rest of the people in the state. That's all. All right, Kalina, sorry to hear that you want to leave Connecticut. I'll let Jim Cameron respond uh, to some of your comments. Well, I'm sorry to hear you're going to leave as well, too. And it's more than marshes and swamps that they're talking about because the original FRA realignment of the Northeast Corridor was going to run straight through the historic district. Uh, Then they came back and they said, well, maybe we can do a tunnel. But, you know, it's getting really expensive to, to try and bypass those areas. And I think Matthew is correct. Some of the realignment they're talking about, anybody that's taken Amtrak along the coast, I mean, you're right there. You're at the edge of the beach. 
And and Lynn is correct. The, the water level is rising. Storms are coming. So we've got to do something if we're going to stay along the coast to either raise the track or move it slightly inland, keep it away from the uh, the perils of uh, of climate change. I mean, you know, if global warming continues, the coastline is going to be closer to the merit than it is I-95. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about rail. Jim Cameron joining us from the studios of WSHU, a transportation columnist, blogger, and founder of Commuter Action Group. Also, Matthew Nemerson, Development Administrator at City of New Haven. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to shift from the shoreline to uh, the middle of the state, and I wanted to find out about that New Haven to Springfield line. Uh, Here's Governor Dana Malloy on Where We Live last week giving us a timeline for when this project could be ready. Uh, That will open uh, sometime next year, as early as January, as late as perhaps spring. In part, uh, it might be delayed because we have appropriated more money to double-track more of that system, and it might make sense to um, uh, hold off even though the bulk of the system will be completed uh, until we get the the final uh, segment that we've, uh, we're double-tracking. You know, that was once a four-track system, uh, which was discontinued and then torn up uh, piece by piece by piece. So that, that system will, in fact, be a brand-new system of tracks from New Haven to Hartford to Springfield and hopefully well beyond. So we're hearing January 2018, maybe spring 2018, Matt Nemerson? You know, it's very exciting. Uh, you know, once upon a time, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, you could get to almost any place in the state by train. And you could certainly get to Meriden. You could get to Danbury. You could get to Derby um, by train. You could Every city was connected. This will be a game changer. Just like people in New Haven want to get to New York, people in Meriden, North Haven, uh, Berlin want to get to Hartford. They want to get to New Haven. They want to get to Stanford by train. And so for the young woman who called in before and said she was leaving, I think there are going to be hundreds and thousands of young people who are going to now be able to live not only in New Haven, but along these lines, get to jobs in a, hand, in a Hartford, in a North Haven, from a New Haven, and vice versa. It's really going to change people's perception of the city, uh, the cities here. And I think if you look at the success of northern New Jersey and other places that have rich, sort of dense commuter rail, people just have a lot more choices. And right now, uh, for people who don't want to have a car, who want to live in an apartment, there aren't that many choices. Fortunately, New Haven is benefiting a great deal from that. We're booming. We're building thousands of apartments, and they're filling in Hartford, too. But I think that for the future of the state, having these kinds of rail connections, and we'd like to see uh, modernization of the Waterbury line as well, because that will open up the entire valley to rail. So we're delighted with the, what the Malloy administration is doing with trains on the inland portions. And Jim Cameron, you've been following, obviously you follow transportation closer than uh, closer than most people. You know, we heard Malloy saying this could be ready by 2018. Um, how has this changed from the beginning when the project was first announced? Well, I mean, I remember this project when it was envisioned by the DOT back in the 90s. I mean, they had a dream for doing this. They just didn't have any money for doing it. And and to the governor's credit, and I've never been shy about criticizing the governor, but to his credit, he was able to scoop up money that was part of the shovel-ready Obama administration economic uh, revitalization years ago that was passed up by by Florida uh, to put into the New Haven line. Uh, I think it's going to make a big difference, not only in terms of getting cars off of I-91, uh, as Matt was talking about, allowing millennials to enjoy transit-oriented development, uh, housing near a train station that they can then use to get to, to their jobs. But also psychologically, it's going to make a big difference in Hartford at the legislature. 
the legislature is now going to have its employees and its members be able to take a train to their jobs. And psychologically, that's going to make a big difference because for many years, when I went up to Hartford to testify in favor of transportation initiatives with Metro North, I got this blank stare from people saying, you people on the Gold Coast can go buy your own damn trains. Uh, We don't have any train service here. Well, they're going to have it. And I think that's going to make a big psychological difference in the way state government looks at investing in rail. Quickly, Matt. Yeah, Jim's right. And also the Boston all the way to upstate New York and all the way to the Midwest line was also part of the dream. And one of the reasons that they put money into this from the Obama administration was to connect the shoreline to the uh, sort of Boston to inland route. And that's also going to change the strength of Springfield in terms of its connections to Boston. And Hartford and Springfield are very linked economically. So for us, getting the whole western Massachusetts and central of the state the whole Connecticut Valley booming again, these train connections are going to be very, very important for that as we look 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Just think how many people from New Haven can get up to that new casino in Springfield once that line is completed. (laughs) Oh, maybe I shouldn't talk about that. Uh, I wanted to read a tweet. Uh, Kevin writes, how fast could a direct line from Hartford to New York City be? B, the 84 alignment seems far more reasonable. And I wanted to take a quick call, Cheryl from Woodbridge. Cheryl, you're on the show. Oh, hi. Thank you. Um, Yes, I have to apologize because I guess I haven't been following this closely enough to know that there was ever a proposal to go along Route 84. But when I heard it, I just thought it was brilliant. I mean, I actually grew up in Fairfield and I used to commute to New York in my youth and it was wonderful. And I basically got priced out of Fairfield County as a you know professional. And so I'm up in Woodbury now and thinking about what an amazing boon it would be for the upper part of the state to have something that went through Danbury and through Hartford and to Boston, it seems to me exactly what this state needs in that, you know, it would connect Hartford, <coughs> excuse me, to the rest of the civilized world, so, so to speak. <laughs> um, you know, everybody's always talking about how that's getting bypassed and whatever, but it would be a true connection and you would have an option of using the coastline and or 84. So, you know, when you talk about how great it would be to have something come up through Springfield and Hartford, yeah, that would be fabulous, but not for a large part of the state. It would still leave all the rest of us sort of rail rail poor. And I, I just think that's sad, considering when my grandma was growing up in Washington, Connecticut, she could take a train to anywhere, <laughs> New Milford and New York, you know, wherever she wanted to go. So I, I think it's something we should never forget about and really think about, like a a rail through the center of the state would be fabulous. Well, thank you, Cheryl, for your call. We just have a couple of minutes. Uh, Jim Cameron, obviously, uh, she said something that uh, rings true for many of us that didn't know about this other uh, this plan out there. Um, so what are the next steps now that the FRA has their plan out? Well, I think that uh, given the opposition that we heard from uh, Senator Blumenthal, who I think has been extremely good on rail issues in his entire uh, service, uh, not only as attorney general, as U.S. senator as well, too. Uh, I'm not sure if the inland route is is still uh, doable or it's going to be back on the table. you got guys like Matthew uh, who are looking out for the interests of New Haven and don't want to be bypassed by, you know, world-class high-speed rail. But think also of, of what the economies of towns like Danbury and Waterbury uh, and Hartford would mean if you had world-class high-speed rail, the proximity of those communities to New York City and Boston uh, with 225-mile-an-hour trains instead of 100-mile-an-hour trains would make a huge economic uh, difference for the, for the center part of the state. 
you know, Jim, we've been looking at this plan for actually six or seven years as it came out of uh, the, the 2050 plan that preceded it. We, we've always been supportive of, of more rail in the state, and so we never thought we were going to be bypassed. I think that's a little bit of an overstatement. But but we also like the Long Island route, which I think you didn't like, because there are 5 million people there, and Connecticut's been talking about a bridge to Long Island for 50, 60 years, and that would open up a whole other market. So I think... I think that what we should say is let's not be critical of any of the planning that went on here. Both the plans going through Danbury, was a, that was an interesting plan. A lot of environmental issues there, tunneling and huge costs there. And I think the Long Island one as well. So maybe if Trump is really going to be spending a trillion dollars, we can look at all three of them, <laughs> fixing up the shoreline, going through Danbury, and having the tunnel under the sound. Because that would really put Connecticut right in the, the crosshairs of all of the economic growth in the Northeast. And one more call. Vicki from Norwich. Vicki, you're on the show. Quickly, please. I would like to know why is um, New Haven and Stanford and Bridgeport is being talked about concerning the um, rail um, system, but Norwich and upper part of this way is not being talked about. All right. Good question, Vicki. Uh, Jim, you want to take that one? Uh, Vicki, um, you, you, str- you need a Matthew. <laughs> you, you need a stronger business advocate. Uh, you know, there used to be what was called the airline. The New Haven Railroad actually ran a line that kind of cut the corner off the state and bypassed Providence and went through Norwich and the eastern part of Connecticut on its way up to Boston. Uh, I think that's mostly rail trails and things like that now. But there are, you know, in 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 regards to that and other areas of the state, there are a lot of uh, disused, unused rights of way where trains used to run that could still be recaptured and put rails down to expand rail service throughout the state. And I, I think that uh, Norwich needs to be considered. Uh, you know, the Groton area, the sub base that's there as well, too. New London. Uh, New London doesn't get a cell of service. It only gets regular slow train Northeast Corridor service. I think a lot of the opposition from communities like Stonington, uh, and mystic to even the electrification that was done years ago to allow Acela to run to Boston was because those areas don't get train service. They're flyover country. Those communities deserve rail service as much as the southwest corner of, of the state in Fairfield County. And- I'm sorry. We're going to have to leave it there. We're almost out of time. But I want to thank Matthew Nemerson uh, for joining us today. He's development administrator for the city of New Haven. Thanks for taking the drive up. Maybe next time you can take the train to our Looking Hartford forward studios. forward to it, yep. I appreciate your time, Matthew. Now, next we're going to talk about bullet trains. They're fast and a reality in Europe. We'll find out more about high-speed rail broad right after this break. This is where we live. About trains. I get a sad kind of feeling when I see a passenger train. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, the inauguration of President-elect Donald Trump. On the next Where We Live, we'll preview the day's events with a team of reporters and political experts. And, of course, we want to hear from you, too. Are you looking forward to a Trump presidency? If not, what's your plan of action? Join the conversation on the next Where We Live. That's tomorrow. Now, today we're talking trains. Jim Cameron is with us today. He's a transportation columnist, blogger, founder of the Commuter Action Group. Joining us by phone now is Ben Adler, staff writer at Grist.org. Ben, welcome to the show. 
Thank you for having me. Now, we um, invited you on because you wrote a story, What America Can Learn from Europe's High-Speed Train. So tell us, what can we learn? Well, um, you know, Europe has a much more advanced high-speed rail system than the United States does. Uh, and we're talking now finally about catching up um, in part uh, the California plan being the most uh, notable example. Um, but the thing that is important to understand about uh, Europe is that cities are much more uh, densely concentrated uh, in and around their cores, um, and that lends itself much more to rail transit. Um, and so, which isn't to say that we shouldn't try to do it here, only that it's important to uh, situate the stations in uh, downtown centers and uh, that will trigger more development of um, housing and, and uh, commercial space and uh, local transit around those stations if, where it doesn't already exist necessarily, um, rather than going out to some sprawling suburb and putting a high-speed rail station there. Um, that, that won't necessarily work or pay for itself because if people have to drive on either end of their trip, they're not going to take the train. Uh, we know that sprawl's a problem here in the states, uh, but you also wrote about uh, wrote about just riding a real high speed train in Germany uh, between uh, Berlin and Hamburg, and how that's radically different than riding the Amtrak's Acela. Tell us about that. Well, it's it's just a much better value. I mean, uh, it it is faster than the Acela, um, but is uh, priced uh, more like uh, the regional Amtrak. Uh, or even cheaper than the regional Amtrak. Um, so it's just an altogether better experience. Also, um, on time, in a way that, uh, I mean, if you take the Amtrak, uh, you know it's usually late. Um, but it's complicated because they have a whole, they have prioritized that. It's not just that Amtrak's poorly managed, though it probably is. Um, it's that it's, that, um, it's borrowing uh, tracks from like freight trains and it gets stuck behind them and they've made a priority of commuter or uh, a passenger rail in Europe. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it's something we need to do here too, if we want to achieve those kinds of speeds and uh, on time rates. Um, and then uh, it, but again, also it's, you, you see if you take uh, intercity trains in Europe, the difference in uh, the way that it's, been developed, you have these dense nodes in cities, and then in between them, I mean, Berlin and Hamburg are the two uh, largest cities in Germany, and they're only two hours apart on the high-speed rail, uh, but in between them, you pass through farmland. Uh, you never pass through farmland. Uh, if you take the, the Amtrak from Boston to D.C., you never pass through farmland, um, and that's because of sprawl. Um, nonetheless, Boston to D.C. Is, is one of the few corridors uh, in the U.S. that is dense enough uh, in the inner cities to um, get a lot of passengers taking trains um, and is one, one stretch that is ripe for uh, uh, high-speed rail development. Now, Ben, we have uh, Jim Cameron here with us, uh, who is founder of the Commuter Action Group and a transportation columnist and blogger. Jim, you said you've, you've traveled extensively. What can we learn from Europe that would actually make sense? We, we do have these, these sprawling areas. 
Well, I think that uh, um, Ben is absolutely right. The reason that uh, Europe has done so well with high-speed rail is the the density of the cities, the proximity of how close they are to to each other. The Europeans also benefited from a little redecoration that the United States and the Allies did after World War II, which kind of gave them a clean slate when it came to rebuilding their their transportation uh, infrastructure. Um, Amtrak owns the tracks between Boston and Washington, with the exception of uh, a big section here in Connecticut that's owned by the state itself. Uh, we don't share those tracks with uh, with freight railroads. Uh, the the long distance uh, you know trains that go across the country do have to uh, ride on freight railroad tracks, and that means they're slower and they're put behind uh, freight, which seems to have a priority over. Uh, over passengers, and I think that the reason that uh, that uh, as Ben pointed out, the fares in in Germany and and European countries tend to be lower than on Amtrak is because the subsidy is higher. Uh, you know, there's huge levels of taxation in Europe that Americans would not understand or tolerate, and gasoline over there costs about five dollars a gallon, and that money is being used to subsidize mass transit. We do the opposite in this country. We keep gasoline prices low to subsidize use of the highways. Uh, you know, I think one of the solutions to the traffic that we have in this state, in Connecticut, along 95, along the Merritt, is to raise gasoline prices and use that money to subsidize mass transit. Those rail lines run right along those highways. And if we could get people out of their cars and onto the trains, there'd be less traffic for those people that actually have to drive. And now you've done it, Jim. The phones are lighting up <laughs> with your proposal to raise taxes. But I did want to just bring up this quick point in uh, Ben Adler's story. Um, he writes, successful high-speed rail requires more than just laying tracks between cities and buying fancy new rail cars. That sounds a lot like what the FRA is recommending. Well, I think the state has got a lot of interest in, you know, the, the buzzword these days is transit-oriented development. Uh, the state wants to, uh, even along the busway between New Britain and Hartford, their vision is that if, if you build that transportation, uh, communities will develop around some of those stations as well, too. But uh, Ben is correct. I mean, the reason European rail is so successful, uh, like uh, the Northeast Corridor, is it runs from downtown to downtown. Mm-hmm. Well, we've run out of time. I want to thank Jim Cameron, transportation blogger and founder of Commuter Action Group. He joined us today from the studios of WSHU in Fairfield. Thank you so much, Jim, for your time. My pleasure, Lucy. Thanks. Also, thanks to Ben Adler, staff writer at thegrist.org. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. And special thanks to Cormac Neely, the biggest rail fan I know. He alerted me to this awesome series on YouTube, Extreme Trains. Just don't believe what they said about Acela. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.